I don't remember a time when I didn't have a testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel. I think I've always believed in the church, but like others, at times in my life I have had special experiences and spiritual witnesses that have strengthened my growing testimony. And, like many others, I have had times when my testimony hasn't been so strong. One day, I was driving alone in my car. As I drove, I decided to say a vocal prayer and ask Heavenly Father for a special witness. You don't have to worry. I kept my eyes open so I wouldn't crash. But I hoped inside that I'd be able to see an angel or perhaps hear a voice declaring that Joseph Smith was truly the Lord's chosen prophet. With such a manifestation, I promised that I would never, ever doubt again. Well, as I was waiting for a heavenly response, the answer came. No, it wasn't a verbal response or an angelic vision, but in my mind I could clearly hear the words, Jay, you already have an absolute undeniable proof that the church is true. You have the Book of Mormon. The answer seemed so straightforward and simple. I thought, that's right. If the Book of Mormon is true, then the church is true also. Joseph Smith is a prophet, and we have the gospel on the earth today. I decided at that moment to go home and start not just reading the Book of Mormon, but actually studying the pages of the Book of Mormon. This is Between the Lines of the Book of Mormon, and we're your hosts. I'm Jay Harris. And I'm Andrew Harris. And we're so pleased that you would join us for this discussion today. We just wanted to talk today a little bit about the Book of Mormon itself and, and how amazing of uh, evidence of the church it is. No question. You think about the beautiful doctrine that's taught in the Book of Mormon and how consistent it is throughout. It's yeah. remarkable. Yeah, it's really neat. And when you think about how we got it, it's a miracle. <laughs> it is a miracle. Joseph Smith was given these plates he was a farm boy. He was just some random kid, you know, like he didn't really have any talents or abilities that would make him able to translate ancient writings. No. And then he just took these plates and were just read from them and someone else would write down what he was saying. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. It really is amazing that he just transcribed it that way. And some of those men that he worked with in that translation process would later go on to become powerful witnesses that wrote their testimony down that we have in, in the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. I love the words of the witnesses. They're all really powerful. They had some amazing experiences. The three witnesses had an angel appear to them, and they heard a voice, it says. And we also know that they have been translated by the gift and power of God, for his voice hath declared it unto us. They not only got to see these plates and see an angel, but God told them, Joseph Smith translated this by my power. Throughout the remainder of their lives, none of the three ever denied their testimony. In fact, they staunchly defended their testimony and said, whatever the case, no matter how mad we might be at Joseph Smith, we're never going to deny the fact that we saw the plates, mm -hmm. we heard the voice of God, and we know that these things are true. And there were many people who said, 
yeah, you've written this story and you say you have plates. We don't believe you have plates. We don't think that they even exist. Yeah. And so Joseph Smith was allowed to show eight witnesses. Yeah. They actually got to see the plates and they said they had the appearance of gold and they got to handle them and feel the leaves and feel the engravings on them. These eight witnesses never denied their testimony either. Mm -hmm. They were faithful to that testimony throughout their lives. Yeah. I've heard people say that there's another witness of the plates. And that would be Emma Smith. Yeah. And she said she actually felt the individual sheets like lifting up under the cloth, which I think is also an interesting witness because that was during moments where no one was around. And even though she didn't actually see an angel or maybe she never looked under that cloth, she got to feel the plates actually and move them around as she was cleaning things. Yeah. It's, it's kind of another interesting witness. And if those are not enough witnesses, you consider the complexity of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Nephi creates two sets of plates. He gives one set of plates to his son, or the next the king, next king. king Nephi II. And the second set of plates he hangs on to and then ends up giving those to his brother. And that's what we have today, are the records that were given to Nephi's brother Jacob. Yeah. And then Jacob passes them down to his son. So instead of having the story as told by the kings, as you would expect, the story's told by brother Nephi's yeah, the, of the king. The brother of well, the brother of Nephi and then yeah. all of his descendants. And they refer to the kings, but this is a parallel story that's taking place, just referring to the things that are going on in the Nephite kingdom. Yeah. Quite remarkable. Finally, the record, after hundreds of years, reaches the hands of a man who then decides, because he doesn't have a son, decides to give this record to King Benjamin. Yeah. So Benjamin was a descendant of Nephi. So again, the plates returned to that lineage. Yeah. But then almost immediately what happens? It gets separated into two different groups. <laughs> Amazing. So, so now we have two different stories, and they're happening right at the exact same time in different parts of the, the world. So it gets really kind of complicated. And, you know, as I read it, or as I read it the first time at least, I don't think I really understood what was going on. It was Kind of complicated there. A little confusing. I agree. It is confusing because you've got these two different stories going on. You've got the story of three kings. Mm -hmm. That's King Mosiah, and then his son, King Benjamin, and then his son, Mosiah. And these are all the kings and the events that are taking place in Zarahemla. But then at the same time, exactly the same time, you have another three kings that are clear back in the land of Nephi. That's King Zenith, and then King Noah, he's infamous, yeah. and then King Limhi. Yeah. And then all of this is also being translated by Mormon, who's now putting it into one book. But he, there's all these different people, all these different stories, and it, it does. It gets confusing a little bit. If you were creating a story and a novel about different places, how would you do it? Oh, the way I would probably do it is I would write a little bit about one, one of the groups, and then transition over to this other group, and then go back and forth in, between the two. And so you don't really ever forget what's happening with one group. you know, On the same timeline, yeah. so that you go back and forth. But how did Mormon record it? I'm guessing that what happened was Mormon had two different records of these people and just put it all together into one book. But he just wrote the complete story of the one group, and then, and then the complete story. The complete, yeah. Story and what happened to, to the other group. So interesting. It's a, it's a little confusing, but if you read between the lines of the Book of Mormon, it's interesting to think that this wicked King Noah was a contemporary of this marvelous King Benjamin. 
They just lived in different places and had no awareness of each other, at least no recorded awareness of each other, but they are taking place at exactly the same time. Yeah. And as we're reading King Benjamin's story, it's easy to kind of think, oh, well, this happened first, and then, you know, we get to this King Noah, and, <laughs> and we read that, and that happened years later. But yeah, they're going on at the same time. They're it's going just on at the same time. We can't really, the way Mormon <laughs> bridged it, he, he just kind of shoved one here and then put the other one there and uh, keep, keeps them separate. And finally, the group that were in the land of Nephi were overrun by the Lamanites, and they were guided by the Lord back to the land of Zarahemla. And once again, these people were reunited. I'm sure it was a thrilling event. Well, and before that, they kind of get divided even further because then Am or Alma, he has his own group that kind of gets separated too. So, But yeah, they all come back together and they're all back in one area finally in the end. Again, reading between the lines, if you can imagine Joseph Smith dictating this to his scribe, it would have been so easy to get confused about names or places or dates. Mm -hmm. But there's no mistake. There's not so much as a hiccup. Yeah. It just has it perfectly outlined. It is quite amazing. And then when once they get back together, we have another story which breaks into three different groups. It is just remarkable, the complexity of this amazing book. Yeah. And there's prophecies going on at this time. There's doctrinal things as far as following the Old Testament and things that they're teaching about Christ because they had revelations about his coming. Yeah. Um, there's all kinds of things that are happening at the same time. Obviously, there are people who believe that Joseph Smith just made this all up. I mean, if he made this all up, he had the most amazing mind <laughs> of any human ever. I, I agree. Think. <laughs> because it's so complicated and the way it happened. The he prophecies did. about our time and the last days are all in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Just there are so many. And he didn't have a bunch of books sitting out in front of him and notes and graphs and things right. that he was using. Yeah, if you were an author <laughs> and were attempting to write a novel of this complexity, what do you think you'd need <laughs> to do it? Yeah, I... Well, I would definitely need a, a computer <laughs> with all kinds of notes and images and graphs yeah. of different places and different times or charts mm -hmm. showing where people were and the different names of, of people as you went down through. Yeah. Um, you'd, at least you'd need some notes. Yeah, I need to do a lot of studying beforehand too. Yeah. Joseph Smith dictated the writing from the gold plates to the scribe without any notes, without any charts, without anything except just sitting down to write. Let me read you yeah. Joseph Smith's wife's account. She writes, When acting as his scribe, Joseph would dictate to me hour after hour, and when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could do this, and for one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. It was. It was just impossible for a man to create such an amazingly complex book. It really is. An amazing. amazingly inspiring book. Now, Andrew, returning to the Book of Mormon history, what is the most important event to occur in the Book of Mormon? When Jesus Christ appears to the Nephites, that is definitely the climax, and it's the most powerful part of the Book of Mormon. It's the most powerful testimony of the Book of Mormon, and it proves beyond any shadow of a doubt 
that Jesus Christ is, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He appeared in Jerusalem, and then in America, when there was no travel, and he appeared by coming down from the sky. I mean, there's no way to deny his divinity. And there are a lot of stories that are told in ancient Native American tribes all the way from North America down to South America about a great white god coming and teaching the people and then ascending back up into heaven. Yeah. This is fulfillment of those stories. This is the actual account of Jesus Christ appearing to the people here. Almost 300 years passed. There was peace, but unfortunately, eventually, jealousy, hatred, and wickedness began to creep back into the hearts of the people. The Lamanites and the Nephites began to war again. There was such hatred that was embedded in those people. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, were killed in those battles. Mm -hmm. I imagine, that, at least towards the end, it wasn't really much of a battle on the Nephite side. They were probably just getting slaughtered and disappearing as a people, and, and they were outnumbered. But, yeah, they basically got wiped out. The great military leader, Mormon, was one of the last Nephites to live during that time. Before his brutal and untimely death, he collected all of the Nephite writings and engraved on golden plates an abridgment of those writings. Yeah. This abridgment he called the Book of Mormon. Then, at some point, Mormon delivered these plates to his son Moroni and bravely went into his final tragic battle. Moroni surprisingly lived on. Yeah. Moroni added the book of Ether, which is the story of an entirely different people, and his own writings. His handbook. <laughs> his handbook. And he finally then took these plates and buried them in a stone box. In New York. In New York. Where they would lay for 1,300 years. Yeah, a long time. And then after he died he was commissioned to return to the earth and visit the prophet Joseph Smith and tell him where these plates were hidden. And Joseph Smith was able to dig them up and then by translating could dictate to someone who then wrote down the words as Joseph Smith received those words through inspiration and revelation. Yeah. And that's how the Book of Mormon came to be. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like we look at these things almost like they're this beautiful painting that God's making for us. And it's another way of kind of testifying that God's there. And one of those things is a circular pattern in the Book of Mormon, where at the very beginning, this whole story really starts with Joseph Smith questioning, what church do I join? And, and God teaching him through the scriptures, if any of you lack wisdom, ask of God, and you can get this answer. Yeah. And then the Book of Mormon ends on that same note, which is, if any of you want to know if this is true, you can ask God. And it brings us right back to the beginning of the Book of Mormon, where in the introduction page of the Book of Mormon, it says the same thing. It's one of those really powerful principles, that principle of, if you want to know if this is true or not, you can ask for yourself. The whole church hinges on that. I love the Book of Mormon. I love studying it. I love the truths that are found therein, and the fact that all of this helps not only to testify of the Book of Mormon, but it also is a powerful witness of the Bible and the other scriptures that we have, because they all work together to build the foundation for all the doctrines of the church.
Now returning to our original thoughts. After I returned home from my experience in the car, I decided to really study the Book of Mormon. And as I have studied, I've invited Andrew to join me, and we have determined to make a podcast. Right, Andrew? Yeah. We want to share with, with you, personally, some of the things that have helped us to grow and to understand passages in the scriptures a little bit better. Yeah, not merely spiritual thoughts that we quote from the Book of Mormon, but we wanted to delve a little deeper into some of the things that you may not have considered before. Some of those things that maybe aren't on the surface level, but are in between the lines. Right. What my children often refer to as aha moments where you feel inspired and feel that you have delved deeper into the Book of Mormon topics. And hopefully you'll learn something, and more importantly, you'll feel the Spirit and have a desire to to become a better disciple of Christ. So, let's get started. In the next episode, we'll cover the first two chapters of 1 Nephi. Until then, enjoy your reading.